Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. It is good to be behind the mic. I've had a busy May and beginning of June. Kids stuff, garden stuff, house stuff. I was also out in Utah with Animus Valley Institute. And today, in fact, I fly out to California for another Animus program. So my travel life is picking up, or at least for the time being, it is, which feels good and strange and new. And yeah, so uh, what do I want to talk about today? I actually want to talk about an approach, or maybe I should say approaching deconstruction and the dark night, which are not the same thing, at least in my view, and, and emptiness. And I, I want to, maybe the title is something like Defeated. I want to turn to Rilke, a poem I've read before, probably on this podcast. It's a poem that continues to sort of shape shape me and challenge me. And so I want to look at this poem with a little more depth. And one reason why I want to talk about deconstruction is because the word has sort of entered spiritual-ish circles. And it's been around for a while. I mean, people talking about their faith deconstructing or deconstructing their faith. or And now even some people are speaking of reconstruction. Uh, there was a, a church that I, I know of that was offering reconstruction classes. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. What do we mean by deconstruction? And another phrase that has kind of entered um, kind of common, I should say common spiritual circles. I don't know what kind of circles you're in, but uh, people often use the phrase the dark night. And or I'm going through a dark night, or I went through a dark night. What do we mean by this? And, and I, I want to muse on that a bit. And I want to go ahead and, and admit my beginner status here. Now, I've been around the conversation around deconstruction for a long time. And I, that was language I used for a while. When to Speaking of my own faith and my own relationship with the Bible, I'll maybe talk a bit about that in a few minutes. The dark night is not a phrase that I've used, and I've had some hesitation around it. Of course, it comes from St. John of the Cross, and, and I think he meant something very different. And I've been reading St. John of the Cross. That's why I want to admit my extreme beginner status, pre-beginner status. In fact, he says in The Dark Knight that he's writing to beginners, and, I, and my feeling is I, I haven't yet even reached the beginner status um, when it comes to being shaped by the kind of thing John is is trying to describe. St. John of the Cross is a 15th, 16th century mystic, and along with Teresa of Avila and the Cloud of Unknowing, make up this really important contribution to, to mystical Christianity. I guess that would be one way of putting it, contemplative Christianity. But um, I would like to at least mention some very cursory things about the sort of terrain that John seems to be describing here. And uh, maybe just to begin, or maybe before to begin, I, I, I want to maybe do a quick advertisement. I have a uh, an intensive, my own intensive or retreat coming up at the end of June. And the dates are on my website, kentopson.com. And I think I have two spots left, and it's going to fill up. So if that's something that interests you and you live near Michigan, it's going to be a Tuesday to a Saturday. It's going to include a one-day solo and fast. So it's more of an intensive than a, than a retreat. 
Uh, but I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't, I haven't done a, one of my own programs, which I call Wilderness Within, in a, in a while, at least in Michigan. So it will be good to be in a, in a wild place with a small group of people. So if you live near Michigan and or in Michigan and that interests you, all the details are on my website. Send me an email. I'll have limited access to email. Might as well go ahead and admit that for the next week because I'll be in California probably out of cell phone range, but I'll get back to you as soon as, as soon as I can. So, um, maybe nothing else on the, on the ad front here, other than to say, I can't make this podcast without my patrons. So always, as always, your, uh, monthly contributions make it, make a huge difference and make this thing possible. So special thanks to my patrons. And, and in fact, this, this podcast is inspired by a couple of emails I, I received about deconstruction and from my patrons. So, um, thanks for, for raising your ideas and questions and comments and helping stir the pot here. Okay. Um, before I turn to Rilke, I want to describe a bit of the Jacob story because the poem I'm going to read, it's called A Man Watching alludes to the story of Jacob wrestling the angel or the being or the man is really what it says in, in Hebrew. And, um, and if you don't know anything about the Jacob story, I, I just want to do a tiny quick overview. And even if you are familiar with the Jacob story, it's good to bring to mind because one of the things that's happening with the great poets is that they're in conversation with the Bible much of the time and, and they're, they're in conversation with the mystics and the saints. It, there is a choir. There's an invisible choir of ancient voices that's singing harmony and and conversing. If if you have ears to hear, and and so it's important just to hear the backdrop of the story of Jacob and maybe just a few things that I want to mention. So Jacob is a twin, and he's second born. And this was a big deal in the ancient world. Being first born meant you were going to sort of be the next patriarch of the family. And that mattered because, you know, family wealth in a generation or so, if everyone sort of gets an equal portion, just disappears. And this was a way of sort of preserving a sort of lineage of, of resources, land, things like that. And, um, and that's just part of the time period. It's not, not uh, exclusive to the Bible. It's all over the, the Middle East uh, this common way of uh, passing on heritage. So Jacob is born second, which means he won't in- inherit his father's inheritance. And and he's called, interestingly enough, Yaakov means heel grabber, which which is kind of an allusion to being deceptive, like grabbing someone by the heel or, or um, you know, like the way a snake might bite the heel. Or, or even if you think about the Achilles heel this this vulnerable place that that's uncovered from the armor and you could be struck and he's that kind of person and 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 sure enough he sort of lives into this image of being second born but grabbing for things and and he tricks his brother and his father um, Esau and Isaac Isaac is his father for the birthright and the inheritance sort of in collusion with his mom I, I've talked about this before he he, he has a kind of um, almost a mother, well, I would say, to use sort of Jungian terms, and that's the way I mean it here, um, a kind of mother complex. He's a tent-dwelling, sort of vegetarian, likes the shade, 
is deceptive and and colludes with his mother to trick his father. Whereas Esau, he's kind of a wild man. This is Jacob's brother, and he's hairy and red and hunts and likes wild game and sort of is a, is a favorite of his father's. He probably has a kind of father complex, though he won't go home, you know. <laughs> he, he, uh, he prefers the wild places. And, and, of course, one way of understanding is that these are two sides of the human psyche, not just the masculine psyche, but the psyche, period. The sort of tent-dwelling and wild instinctual self, they're always colliding. And uh, in any case, Jacob fools his brother and then has to run for his life. And And here he spends many, many years away, and he gets deceived himself. He falls in love with a woman, and, and this woman's father ends up tricking Jacob, and uh, he ends up uh, marrying her sister and is sort of stuck in this family for even longer than he wanted to. And um, I won't go into all the details here, but it's interesting that he sort of comes of age, but then has to leave home and run for his life. And he has a real identity problem. And that's maybe the most important thing. Who is Jacob? I mean, he's stolen something, but he can't come home to claim what's his. So he's got a real problem. And the kind of, quote, blessing that he received, because that's the idea. The father blesses the son with the inheritance. He can't even claim or get near or own. And plus, his own brother Esau wants to kill him. And quite a setup for a story. It's like, you know, the opening scene of East of Eden, which is which is also in dialogue with with the Jacob and Esau story where these two brothers, you know, are just fighting and one beats the other to an inch of his life. And it's that kind of animosity. It's that, that kind of brotherly animosity and that kind of hunger for, for identity and for responsibility and, and a sense of this is who I am in the world. And, and Jacob hasn't found that. And anyway, he finally, his father is ill and he goes back home and he crosses the uh, river and uh, entering back into uh, what would eventually be called the promised land. This is before that kind of language was being used in the Bible, but uh, he enters back into the land of his forefathers, so to speak, and he sends all of his possessions across the river at night and hoping that that his brother Esau will encounter all these um, children and and his wives and and his and goods and and he'll come last that's the idea and and which is eventually what happens and he falls down before his brother seven times and which is probably why jesus says um why they why uh, i think peter asked jesus hey should we forgive our brother up to seven times <laughs> jesus says something like seven times 70 he's just sort of like a a trickster kind of answer on the part of jesus but anyway they're alluding to the story and um What's, what's intriguing to me about this scene is that Jacob, I'm, I'm going to add some details, some contemporary interpretive details. He's reached something like middle life, and the middle of his life, or a midlife crisis, you could even say. And it is a crisis of identity. Is he going to spend the rest of his life just grabbing like a snake the heel, or, or is he going to own up? And, um, and he starts to take a step toward, I think, owning his life, and really facing the things that he's done. And and interestingly enough, he enters a night. And that's maybe the first thing I want to say, because both deconstruction and what I would like to just just very briefly allude to with the dark night, it's a night. It's a kind of night. 
It's a kind of darkening of life that's happening. It's a fog, you could say, and I don't care what kind of deconstruction you are going through or have gone through, it feels dark. <laughs> uh, you can't quite see very far down the road. And that's the place that Jacob finds himself. And, and interestingly, and I think symbolically, he sends all of his possessions across the river so he's alone at night on the riverbank. And maybe this is the most important image for this part of the story, that a real wrestling match with the soul, with your deepest identity, with the divine, the, the transcendent, the one, the, the, the mystery, requires a kind of raw nakedness. You can't go back to the Garden of Eden, that, that, there's an angel with a flaming sword. You can't go back to paradise, but you can stand naked, so to speak, before your life and before the divine. And part of that, part of what seems to be required in order to do that is not identify with any possessions. It's not about role. It's not about possessions. It's not about toys. It's not about 401k, you know, all the stuff that, that we pay lip service to. We say, yeah, we know, know it's not about that stuff, but another part of our, our own heart uh, craves those things. I know who I am by my, by my possessions, by what I own, um, by the, you know, the, the title before my name, by my CV, you know, or by, by my family name or, or how I'm perceived in the community. All that has to get sent across the river if you want a real midlife. And I don't mean that necessarily like you got to be 40 or something. I just mean post-adolescence. It's like it, or it could be right in the, in the, the heat of the end of adolescence, and I mean that psychologically or psycho-spiritually, where you start to crave something deeper, the deeper mysteries of life. And it's all got to go across the river. You have to let go. You have to stand there and say, I don't know who I am anymore, and I don't know who God is anymore. And that is a deeper kind of darkness than we're typically used to, and certainly than uh, spiritual circles are comfortable with so much language about manifesting and and living the best life and the good life and and uh, okay there's nothing wrong with that kind of that kind of longing um maybe it's maybe the longing is just really for connection and meaning beneath what people call happiness or whatever um but you know there's there's not a much palette anymore for the stripping off of identity and that can feel like deconstruction I'll, I'll say more about that in, in a couple minutes. Um, but that's the image. You got to send it across the river. And then you have to uh, wait in the darkness f to wrestle with who you are and with a being here, with, with a man, it says. With, <laughs> is he wrestling himself? Is he wrestling an angel? Is he wrestling God? The answer is something like yes. And... Um, yeah, and just to continue with the story before I read the poem, what happens is that you can feel Jacob's desperation. He's saying, I won't let you go. He's actually a good wrestler, which is a clue that, you know, and even the, the will is involved here, you know, that you, you say, okay, let's, let's throw down. Uh, 
But anyway, he, he refuses to let go. He says, I refuse to let go of you until you bless me. And you have to realize that he's already got all the blessing there is to get. He's got his inheritance. He's got his, the family name. It belongs to him, yet he feels empty. There, there is a deeper kind of blessing that he's hungry for, and he's following that longing. Maybe he doesn't even know um, how that longing is met. That's my, that's my guess. But he, he feels that craving. Maybe you know what he's talking about. Okay, yes, but. Okay, I'm in a good relationship, but. I have a good job, but. Um, my children are doing great, or I have children, but, um, and, and there's like a, a craving or a longing. Holy shit. I have to like pause here for a second. This is very mysterious. I'm in my garage and there's a snake in here. <laughs> it's very beautiful and it just scared the crap out of me. Um, talk about heel grabber. Talk about a kind of silent and primal fear here and mystery. So I'm just going to let this be here. Maybe I'll crack the garage door one second. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Wow, that was awesome. <laughs> I know you can't feel that on a podcast, but uh, <laughs> it, was, it was good for me. Um. Okay, so maybe I just want to define some terms here around deconstruction before I read the poem. And, and I want to say, this is, deconstruction be, can be very painful. And, and it also seems to be very important. And there's an element of sort of, especially the, when the deconstruction of faith right now, that, that's transpersonal. It's sort of just in the water. It's it's happening in our culture as we become suspicious of words like truth or doctrine or statements of faith. Or, um, and of course, there's so much, you know, I don't want to sound too negative here, but there, there's so much um, sort of worship of personal tastes right now. Like, well, I just think or I just believe or, um, you know, my tastes and proclivities are taken as the truth. And, and so that, that feeds the the suspicion around systems. So when I say deconstruction, it often feels like this. I'll be sort of brief here, but what's happening? Well, our ideas are being deconstructed. Uh, they're being challenged, and we're wrestling with those ideas being challenged. Doctrines, if you're a person of faith, um, or, or patterns, you could say, because a doctrine is a kind of pattern. Uh, for me, it started with the Bible. Like, I grew up in a pretty... Uh, conservative evangelical Christian fundamentalist uh, culture and environment. And you can read about it in Bitten by Camel if you want. And uh, the Bible was taken as you know the literal truth, the literal word of God, and 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 everything in it was to be taken literally. And even you know some of the the strangest phenomenons like the sun standing still in the Book of Joshua, literal fact, these kinds of things. Um, well, for me. You know, I it for 15 years I was struggling with the Bible being deconstructed, really, uh, by my own efforts and not by my own efforts, like it, just by my own personal questions and by graduate school and 
historical critical scholarship and, you know, language studies and, you know, all the stuff that I fell in love with for a while. But it was also quite painful because you don't know where you stand at, at first when these things start falling apart. And the other thing that starts to happen is, is we start to see our own wounding stories as it relates to a, a faith community or a religious background. And we realize, okay, uh, I'm sure there were some good people around, but I also, there's a certain kind of wound or a certain constellation of wounds that I'm carrying. And you start to become conscious of that. And that hurts. And, and, and for many people, they're like, well, I'm out of here. You know, I've been wounded in a certain way. And so um, I don't appreciate that. And that, that, that's often part of the deconstruction process. And, and, and often the lens gets turned on the parents because, or the caregivers, primary caregivers, because they're often our first images of God or the divine. I mean, we almost can't help it. So a kind of re-examination, this is deeper into the deconstruction process. So it's not just ideas and, and doctrines and statements of faith and Bible, but also our wounding stories and our parental stories and, um, and our beliefs around those things, our beliefs about ourselves and about the world and about God and about sin and about the Bible and about Jesus. And, and suddenly it's like, I don't, know, I don't know what I believe anymore. That's very disorienting. And, you know, for me, this is not in, in any, w any way, shape, or form universal, but I was kind of leaving pretty traditional evangelical beliefs, and, and those were sort of collapsing for me, and I was sort of trying to cling to more progressive ones. Like, and this is often the move here that, that um, I have mixed feelings about. I mean, I could make a whole podcast just on that, but... Oftentimes, in that desperation, we start wanting better stories. And you hear language like this. It's like, well, that's not the God I believe in. The God I believe in, you know, fill in the blank. And, and I choose these stories, not those stories. Or I choose this interpretation and not that interpretation. I, I abandon this doctrine, but I cling to this doctrine over here. And, and that's just part of it because you feel so lost that, that any kind of map that is more palatable is attractive on one level. And this often happens in the deconstruction process. Um, it's funny, like, for me, I sort of thought the, the path, if I, if I can be blunt and embarrassing for a moment, I thought the path was from traditional conservative to slightly more open traditional to, you know, progressive, some progressive version of Christianity, like the progressive Christians, and and then maybe just beyond that, a kind of agnostic progressive uh, spirituality, and then beyond that, a kind of atheistic, agnostic uh, um, stance, you know, to kind of full humanism. That's the arc. You know, I thought I was on that train for a while. You know, I remember checking out the God delusion from the library and saying, is this where I'm at? I, but what I found was this a similar kind of fundamentalism, a, a similar kind of certainty around the structures that I found from the faith I, that was giving me trouble. And so I, that didn't quite fit for me. And that was part of my own deconstruction process. I, I felt a little more like in that in-between land, like between the, the, the desert of Egypt and the promised land, I, I was stuck there, you know, and that was part of even what I wrote about in Bitten by a Camel, just climbing Mount Sinai and feeling like the, um, 
the emptiness, genuinely asking God, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And just brushing against that em- emptiness and, and feeling that kind of longing and, and heartbreak. The, heart, the heartbreaking uh, silence. Okay. Um, now, let's, let's turn to the Rilke poem, poem. And then after the Rilke poem, I'll say a few things about the dark night. I'll make some distinctions between uh, kind of a process of deconstruction, which matters and is important, and sort of what St. John is talking about, which I think is, is really not how we typically think about deconstruction. So, all right, here's the Rilke poem called The Man Watching. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. This is what it feels like, a storm. And I hear the far-off fields say things I can't bear without a friend, I can't love without a sister. You can really feel the, the heartbreak and the longing opening here. The storm... The shifter of shapes drives on across the woods and across time. And the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What we choose to fight is so tiny. And... If I can offer just a little phrase here, I, 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 when I was deeply fighting my fundamentalist past and, and certain interpreta- interpretations of the Bible, it felt like such a big deal at the time. And, and I can see the ways in which now it was so tiny. You know, what we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. And this is the mystery, the spirit, the wind, our own soul, the deep self. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm. I mean, the power of these lines here. I just had, a, had an image. I watched a, a massive storm, part of a hurricane, roll in on the Gulf Coast once. Yeah, uh, if we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. And you can, you can already start to feel the Jacob background, the heel grabber here, right? What is in a name? What is in an identity here? Well, if we could let ourselves be dominated by, by the great mystery, we wouldn't even need names. We wouldn't need, you know, those identity markers. When we win, it's with small things. And the triumph itself makes us small. Think about all the political language right now about winning. You know, When we win, it's with small things. And the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appear to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. This is when the mystery, 
begins to pluck you and play you, the very essence of your own being, like music. Your whole being, your whole body is reverberating with a kind of secret music. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand. Here we meet the, the kind of paradox at work. It's like being defeated and walking away with a certain kind of strength from that harsh hand that needed him. That's K-N-E-A-D-E-D. That needed him, you know, like dough, that needed him as if to change his shape. And maybe we could say this is the essence of all spiritual transformation. I mean, this is an image, of course, but it's the very core. It's not about really even finding yourself. It's about being shaped, kneaded like dough, into, into your true shape. You know, like the Buddhists say, that the, the face you had before you were born or something like that. Who you are before your names. That's, that's to use the, the old-fashioned way of putting it, shaped into your destiny. Yeah, but by who? Not by you. But by being defeated, he's saying. Winning does not tempt that man. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. You know, this line, I, it's like I, I carry around, you know, in my, <laughs> somewhere in my chest. Not that I believe it all the time, I don't. Or not that I consent, oftentimes I don't consent. I don't want to be defeated by greater beings. But this is a whisper of the ancient truth here, coming up from the underground river of memory. Yes, um, being defeated decisively by ever and ever greater beings is the path of transformation and is the very thing that, that begins to shape us uh, into, into a kind of destiny. But it, but it happens on a lonely shore, on a dark night. And here we start to get little glimpses of what is meant by the dark night, which is, again, I think different than uh, just the process of deconstruction. See, the dark night wounds us in some way. It wounds us. And in, in St. John of the Cross's poem, he's, he says, uh, on a dark night I, I slipped away and, and no one noticed. And I began to climb a ladder, and, and no one noticed. And, and when I met the Beloved in, in the darkness, he wounded my neck, it says. This is just like Jacob being struck in the hip. So at the moment, he, he, he has the angel in a headlock. He says, bless me. And the angel finally does. He says, your, your name is one who wrestles with the divine. And, in, and just so you don't forget it, I'm going to strike you in the hip and wound you. This is a defeat. So Jacob will forever walk with a limp. St. John of the Cross will feel the wound on his neck by the divine lover. No one escapes uh, this level of dark night transformation without a wound. And it's a kind of wound that feels like a blessing at the same time. And you walk away proud and strengthened though with a limp. Like, what a strange mystery. 
Now, one of the things that I just want to mention here is that that has been so striking me. So I had a dream a couple months ago, and and in the dream, a dream character, someone told me, Jung only read the classics, and and the feeling in the dream was, this is what I must do. I, I have to read the classics. And I woke up the next morning, and I looked at my bookshelf, and I felt drawn to St. John of the Cross, the, the Dark Knight. And the Dark Knight is, is really a poem that he wrote in prison. He was in prison by his fellow Christians. And, uh, and, a, and a guard sort of snuck in some uh, paper after hearing him recite some beautiful poetry that he was sort of composing in Spanish. And, and when he finally escaped from prison, he, he brought his poems with him, and, and the nuns that were taking care of him said, this is lovely, will you explain it to us? And, and he did, and that's called The Dark Night, The Dark Night of the Soul. And, and it's really his explanation of, of this manifestation of the muse and of the relationship that was happening in the darkness of his own prison cell what he calls a kind of luminous darkness. And one of the things that he claims is really non-negotiable for stepping more deeply into the dark night, which he says is a calling. It's a calling that God begins to call us, uh, is that we begin to be stripped of, of, of our addiction to our senses. That's my language, but of all sensation and of all consolation. And in fact, we feel no consolation and no senses are gratifying, none of them. So people often think about, well, divine encounter, that's when it's, it's all union and bliss and euphoria. And he says, no, quite the opposite. Uh, the dark night be, really deepens when all that stuff is not satisfactory. This is what St. Augustine uh, means when he says, my soul is restless restless until it rests in you. I always thought he meant, well, until you convert to Christianity, but no, I think he's describing the same, talk about, he's in the, he's in the choir here of, of mystics and saints that are, that are speaking to one another, and, and, um, and, and that kind of deep longing and restlessness, that ache, pulls you into the luminous darkness, if you'll stay with it long enough. And, and his, his major metaphor here, among several, he uses marriage and um, marital union as a, as a major metaphor for the dark night, which happens in secret and, and in darkness. And the other one is being weaned. He says something like this, that for some people uh, who are being pulled into this darkness, it's, what's happening is really that God is weaning us from God. And God is weaning us from all of our ideas about God. This is, and some of this, I mean, I've been not only reading The Dark Knight, but listening to James Finley. He's got a podcast, um, Turning to the Mystics, which I highly recommend if you're starting to, I don't know, feel a, a desire to be in conversation with the mystics. I'm kind of late to the game. My, my wife is really further down the road in this res- respect. She's a spiritual director and, and teaches at the Dominican Center here in Grand Rapids and so she's been in conversation with St. John of the Cross and Teresa and all these mystics for a lot longer than I have. I'm, um, I'm just now starting to, f- to feel the tug, so I'm pre-beginner, to say the least. Anyway, what was my point? Uh, my point was that uh, 
James Finley is, is, makes a big deal about this. He, he says, yeah, it is like God weaning us from God. And, and he says, suppose there's a ladder out in a field and, and at night and you begin to climb it and the first rungs of the ladder are, are something like our beliefs. And yeah, I believe in God and I'm stepping on the ladder, the first rung. And, or I believe in the Trinity. Maybe this is the second rung if you're a Christian. Or, um, or maybe there are other sort of things that you consent to, and, and it feels like, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of ascending. He says, yeah, but at a certain point, at a certain point, the rungs of the ladder disappear, and you're, it feels like you're standing on nothing. And, and you get to a certain point, and you're like, I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't even know what belief is anymore, and I don't know who God is anymore. And, and it might just be not just deconstruction, like, okay, my ideas are being challenged, but I've got other ideas that now I'm clinging to. He says, no, if you'll stay with it, at least for some people, you may find yourself in, in what St. John calls the luminous darkness. It's shot through with a kind of luminosity that you can't see. And this is, according to James Finley, when God says, okay, you've gotten to know me on your terms with your ideas and your questions and your beliefs and, and your consolations and you've showed up uh, to prayer, you've done, you've done a fair amount of wrestling. What would it be like to be stripped completely bare on the side of the river and without sensation, without ideas, what would that be like? What if you came? What if you came to God? What if you came to me on my terms? That's a line from James Finley. Okay, it's nice that you've come to me on your terms. Would you like to come to me on my terms and and something beyond all ideas here? Another line from James Finley is, "No idea of God is God," and I'm often fond of quoting that, which is an idea. But there's something behind that that is that is resting. In a, in a kind of abyss, in a kind of emptiness. This one reason, if I can speak personally, that I've been a little afraid of meditation. I've had kind of like an on and off relationship with it, but mostly off, because to me, I can often feel the ache there, a kind of loneliness. Another line from, from Rilke, go out into your heart as onto a vast plain, and there the immense loneliness begins. And it's like a creeping abyss here, and I don't like it. It's uncomfortable, and I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid, well, who am I without, without my addiction to senses? And, I, and I'm more of an extrovert, so um, by the way, introverts don't get a free pass. They're not automatically in the dark night. That's not what I'm saying. But extroversion is often a way of, uh, at least according to Jung, of one way of describing it is a way of processing reality, and, and I often externalize that process like, contact with other people and ideas and, and, and experiences for me. It's, it's been a big part of my path is like a kind of craving and hunger for experience. And, and, and even in the best experience, the most amazing and numinous kind of encounter that pins you to the ground, if you'll sit with it, you can also feel the emptiness behind it. That not even this and what's happening here is you're getting close to the thing that only God can fill. So God, God fills the emptiness of the void that we are in because he is the void that we are in, something like that, to speak sort of uh, magically about it, I guess. 
And even even my aversion to God, you know, even my aversion to God, which I do, I have aversion to to the word God, and and I have kind of an allergy around Christianity, and and it's served me well, and also it's been kind of childish, kind of like adolescent in a way, and it's like those pastors that that drink beer and cuss, you know, like oh look at us, we're so cool, we drink beer and cuss, and it's, it's adolescent, you know, and my allergy has felt kind of adolescent. I just don't like it. I don't want to consent, and and I don't want to be defeated. Because behind that, to to be defeated is, is to be stripped, you know, and and some days I have taste of that, and maybe now I'm 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 at a at a point where um, this kind of prayer, this kind of of letting go of images and ideas, is is becoming essential, not an option. Is that's that's the way it's starting to feel to me, and I'm not claiming to you know to be in the dark night, but but it's like I have a sense I can taste that just behind all my language around deconstruction and faith, there's something else that waits. And dare I say, if I'm too quick to reconstruct some sort of palatable um, version of Christianity or some uh, humanistic Buddhist agnostic mystical Christ combination of my own making that I gathered from the buffet of options, uh, yeah, I'll still be on the ladder standing on the rungs on my terms. And St. John is saying, yeah, but there are, there are rungs of the ladder that don't have anything to do with your terms. It's like that scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where he's about to get to the, to the vessel, to the sacred cup, and he has to step into the abyss, and he can't see the the bridge. It's a kind of an optical illusion. He throws some dirt on it. I don't know if you remember this scene. It's Harrison Ford. And, and he kind of sees that, oh, it's kind of like an optical illusion, and he steps out, and and he doesn't fall into the canyon. It's kind of like that. You, There are rungs you can't see. And I think that that's where faith begins on the deeper level rather than being certain about beliefs. It's, it's stepping out like that, something like that. You know, maybe one other thing I want to say here around how. <laughs> how do we do this? And, and, and here I can't give advice because I'm, I'm pre-beginner here. But I do know that the path is requires some measure of self-emptying, some measure of, of taking your palms and relaxing them and, and opening them. St. Paul, from the Bible, I think, more and more, he strikes me as a kind of genius in a way. And um, I don't like everything he says, of course, and, and half of the things that, I, that he does say that I don't like aren't really from his pen anyway. People, this is some scholarship, but... You know, a lot of the books that are attributed to Paul were just written in, probably written in his name anyway, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but he, he has this passage where he says that Christ, so already he's putting us into, the, in a, into a, a kind of deeper mythic conversation, not just Jesus, but Christ. Maybe what Richard Rohr would even call Christ consciousness. That Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I think that's such an interesting line because there's so much desire in spiritual circles for union with God. And I think, I don't know, like, 
I don't know. Is that the path? We can handle divine union on our terms, and we think it's going to be euphoric and blissful. You know, so he says that that Christ, the Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and made himself like a slave or like a servant. And, and I think the word in Greek, if I can remember, is something like um, kenosis. Not gnosis, like knowledge, but kenosis, like emptying. He emptied himself. And, and I think, I don't care where you stand in terms of, you know, Christianity or whether you're Orthodox or not, or you know, we're all confused. And um, there's a general agreement that, that in the loosest sense, to be a follower of Jesus means that you, you embody some element of Christ or you discipline yourself in some way, you, you, you follow after Christ. Of course, you can only do that in the way that you can do it. You can't do it in the way that he did it, but you do it in the way you do it. Um, we would say, yeah, I mean, if we're, on, if we're on the path on some way, ought we not to be emptying ourselves? And this is the very nature of a vision fast, by the way. This is Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And, and I've done a couple of fasts and, in my life at Animus, and, and it is really that. It's a self-emptying process. It's, uh, you're not even putting food into your mouth, but you're opening your being like a kind of chalice, an empty chalice, an empty vessel, an empty bowl. That's kenosis. It's a letting go of, of ideas and statements and identities, and it's sending everything across the river. But instead of quickly filling that with whatever comes along, my the next guru, the next book, that's my pro- proclivity, the next, the next experience even, you know, the next program, then, you know. No, no, at a certain point, we follow that longing deeper. Like Rilke says, go to the limits of your longing. We follow that longing deeper until it's a kind of self-emptying until we are the self-emptying vessel that only the mystery of, of the divine or the mystery itself fills. My soul is restless until it rests in you. And that, that I think is, is painful and, and also strangely, um, I don't want to say comforting. It's like painful and meaningful at the same time. There's a kind of grief cry that comes with the emptying I'm, I'm describing here. And so for me, instead of running from that ache in my own chest, it, it feels like being defeated by it <laughs> or, or following it deeper, staying with it long enough. And I think that's one reason why we need Rilke and St. John of the Cross and Teresa and, and other, you know, uh, teachers and mystics, because they're sort of whispering in a language that's hard to hear. They're saying, okay, you're, you're on the path on some way. You're not very far along. They're always saying <laughs> you're a beginner, but you're on the path and, and you can trust that something deeper than your own capacity to figure it out is taking place. And it's going to feel like a wrestling match, and it's going to feel like a wound, and it's going to feel like a defeat. But at the same time, it's going to feel like a kiss, like from a lover, you know, at night. And that's the sort of the, the, the paradox here that's at work. So 
Oh, how do I want to end here? I was just thinking about Merton. He's got this great line. He says, I've seen the morning and the night, and the night was better. And maybe that's a, a good phrase to, to carry. If you're feeling a bit of the darkness here, know that you're in the company of those who have taught us the, the process of, of emptying ourselves, of kenosis, and, and taught us that to, to consent to that sort of longing is to open up to the possibility of being filled by what we can't yet imagine and what we don't know. That's why the, the cloud of unknowing says it's like entering a cloud of unknowing. Here's, a, here's Wendell Berry's way of putting it. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. That's probably how I, I went in into my own process of deconstruction. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm dismantling and challenging things, but I've got this light called reason and historical scholarship. And um, it's like those gotcha moments. You thought the text meant this, but I, you know, of course, Jesus sounds like that. That's not what I was alluding to, but just sort of like those you thought the word in Hebrew was this, it's really that, and that's carrying a light. That's not quite the same thing. It has a place, but it's that's to know the light. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Without Go without sight, he says. Go without sight. And find that the dark, too, blooms and sings. And is traveled by dark feet. And dark wings. To go into the dark with the light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. Peace. <laughs>